and uh, I've enjoyed being able to do a survey of the Old Testament. Kind of helps put the pieces of the puzzle together. Uh, shows how the books kind of intertwine and help us uh, uh, coordinate between some of the things that it teaches. And so I hope that it's been a help to you, uh, understanding a little bit about some of the backgrounds. Uh, we have been dealing now with um, the divided kingdom really since the time of Solomon um, and we have uh, Isaiah, we have Jeremiah coming on the scene. Uh, we've talked about those uh, in the last several uh, weeks, last month or so, uh, how that they are uh, prophets uh, to Israel in, in the northern kingdom <coughs> but mostly to Judah in the southern kingdom. Ezekiel is no different. He also is a prophet primarily to uh, Judah, although again to the nation of Israel as a whole. And uh, he is um, uh, working and serving, ministering during the time of the Babylonian captivity. So let me give you a little bit of uh, kind of a chronological thing here to kind of help keep things in, in mind. Uh, when God finally brings judgment on Judah, which uh, happened later than the time that God brought judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, he used the Assyrians to bring uh, the northern kingdom under captivity uh, a number of years before uh, he raises up Babylon as a, as a world power. Um, Babylon takes over Nineveh, which is the capital city of Assyria, and by virtue of that, they have control over the northern kingdom, even though they didn't have to defeat uh, the northern kingdom. They have control over it because they control Assyria at this point. Um, but they do come in. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and he sets siege at Jerusalem. He does this, um, <clears throat> excuse me, around 605, I think it is, uh, B.C., somewhere in that time period. And um, the, uh, the, the first time that, that Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem, uh, he takes uh, a bunch of the nobility, the children of the nobility, the smart uh, well-educated uh, aristocrat, uh, aristocrats uh, to back to Babylon, and um, he uses uh, in that in that captivity he takes Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those guys all go in that first um, time where he comes to Jerusalem. That was in 605 BC. In 697 BC, so this would be uh, about eight years later. Uh, and I'm sorry, five, did I say 697? I said meant in 597. 597 B.C., uh, which is about eight years later, uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes back and, and again kind of puts Jerusalem under his thumb. The reason he does this is Jehoiakim, who is the king of the time, and he put him under subjection the first time he came, and Jehoiakim, his, his son that came after him, they uh, began a rebellion in Jerusalem. They began not to pay the tribute. They began to rise up uh, and try to uh, kind of just kind of rebel against Babylon. And so Nebuchadnezzar kind of comes, comes back and says, we're going to put you down again. And the second time he comes, he takes Jehoiakim, the king, into captivity, takes him into Babylon. But he also takes 10,000 other hostages from the city of Jerusalem. And then the second time, this is in 597, is the time where Ezekiel is taken into captivity. So you can get an idea. Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach go about eight years earlier. They're in Babylon, so they're already there. They're established. They've already uh, climbed in stature with the king. Uh, Ezekiel is now carried into captivity, and he prophesies to the Jews, of, primarily of Judah, 
uh, of the Jerusalem uh, folks that are there. And he prophesies to them in the Babylonian captivity. Now, Jeremiah, if you'll remember, Jeremiah is still back in Jerusalem. He stays in Jerusalem. He never goes to Babylon as a captive. Uh, he's back and in, in, is in the outskirts of Jerusalem and, and prophesying to the folks that are left there at home. Uh, the message of Ezekiel is pretty much the same thing as what Jeremiah's is, and that is the, uh, the absolute uh, judgment of God that is, no, is in, not in doubt at all at this point. There were some people in, in uh, Babylon, some of the Jews that went to Babylon, that still believed that God was going to make the captivity very, very brief. If you remember, the Babylonian captivity was lasting 70 years. And Daniel had prophesied that, Ezekiel prophesied that, Jeremiah prophesied that. Um, but these people didn't believe that. They believed, boy, this is going to be quick. We're going to be here. God's going to deliver us. We're going to get back home. They really didn't see how bad their sin was uh, and what they had done in the judgment of God. So uh, there's a third time that, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar goes and uh, sacks Jerusalem. This time is when he destroys everything. I mean, he burns everything to the ground, destroys the temple, destroys uh, the walls, the city. I mean, he just sacks the city after a very long siege. That was in 587, so this is about nine years later again. This is the third time now he's come and conquered uh, Jerusalem. And uh, it is during that time that the Jews finally realize we're in this for the long haul. Uh, we're going to be here for a long period of time. Ezekiel uh, spends a good bit of his um, uh, writings here dealing with uh, the Jews in captivity in Babylon uh, from the, uh, the second, cap primarily from the second captivity uh, that Nebuchadnezzar brought them under. <clears throat> the book is divided into four sections. Uh, the first section is God uh, calling and commissioning Ezekiel uh, to his work. And by the way, uh, it's interesting to me uh, how God goes about doing this. Uh, he does this in chapters 1 through 3. So the first three chapters of Ezekiel are dealing with God, dealing with Ezekiel. I, I want to I look at a couple of examples of what God has done in the past because he does the same thing in uh, Ezekiel 1 through 3, if you take time to read through these three chapters, you'll find all three of these things happening with Ezekiel. And that is this, that when God calls him, there are three bit basic things that he does. First, he gives instruction to Ezekiel. He says, this is what I want you to do. And then he gives them the ability. Uh, it's interesting, when God comes to somebody uh, and says, I want you to do a work for me, how often men who are the type of men that God is able to use, often look at it and say, but I'm not able to do that. Um, I was talking to a preacher friend of mine a couple of, a couple of years ago, been about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago now, and um, he was uh, wanting to go into ministry. He had been under a, a pastor, mentoring under a pastor for a period of time, and he got ready to go into ministry, and uh, uh, the uh, one of the pastors that he was counseling with said, uh, you're not you're not quite ready yet. And I understand there's some counsel you can get and some people that maybe can encourage you along the way. <clears throat> but he said, he was told, uh, you're not ready to pastor yet. And I told this fellow as we were sitting there at lunch, I said, if you ever feel that you're ready to pastor, you're not ready. Because the truth is, whenever we come to serve God, and, and I think this ought to be an attitude of every single one of us, when we look at the work that God gives us to do, I don't think there should ever be confidence in ourselves. 
that I can do this. I'm ready. I've got this. Because I believe when we work and do the work that God gives us to do, there needs to be an absolute dependence upon him and an understanding that I can't, I, I can't do this. I am not able to do that. I've told you all before uh, how introvertish I am inside personally, and I'm still this way. I still battle it. And it, to me, is, is almost humorous that God put me in a position where I have to be around people all the time and talk to people all the time. And uh, don't get me wrong, I love it. My heart loves doing that. But it is a challenge for me. Uh, and a lot of times I, I think of men, and I really struggle watching sometimes as men come to the pulpit with a sense of confidence and almost a sense of arrogance of, I've got this, I've, I, I can do this, and there's not that sense of, Lord, I've got to have you, or this isn't going to work this morning. And uh, I, I think that we find this enablement something that a lot of times we, if we're not careful, when it comes to doing the work God's given us to do, we, we, we think, Lord, I can do this. And I want to encourage us in this, that when it comes to the Lord's work, we need to do His work His way, using His methods, but also with His power upon us, with absolute dependence upon Him. Otherwise, we're not going to accomplish uh, very much at all. I'm thankful that His Word does, never returns void, and there are times God works in spite of us. But oh, wouldn't it be so much better if our hearts were humbled enough that we would rely upon Him and God could work through us and, and, and with us and, and use us as an instrument in His hand to do his work and i hope that uh, when it comes to us sharing the gospel with people when it comes to us um doing the work of the lord that there is a humility in that there's an understanding that god did not have to use us he chose to use us and and what a privilege it is and what an absolute dependence we have upon him to accomplish that work because i'll be real frank with you if you ask me today how in the world do you change a man's heart I'll be lost, as lost as a goose. I have no idea how to change a man's heart. But I know God can. And I know the truth of his word can do wonders. And uh, so God can use us, but we must, must be dependent upon him. Let's look at a couple of examples of this. And I, I, we're not going to spend a lot of time. But uh, let's go to, Ezekiel, or to, to the book of Exodus, if you will, chapter number 1. Uh, ex, I'm sorry, chapter number 3. Exodus chapter number 3. And verse number one. And uh, here's where God is calling Moses. And uh, there are three things that God does. He instructs them. He tells them what he wants them to do. When they realize their lack of ability, he enables them to do it. And then he places upon them a, a responsibility, uh, an accountability to God for doing this. And uh, look with me, if you will, in Ezekiel chapter number three. Verse number 1, Now Moses kept the, the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire. The bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses... Moses, and he said, here am I. Boy, isn't that a wonderful, I love every time in the Old Testament when God calls the name of these folks, when I hear them say, here am I, that just does my heart good. 
Uh, wouldn't it be wonderful if our spirit could be such that when God speaks to us, our answer is, here am I. It doesn't matter what you're getting ready to tell me, Lord. My answer is already yes. And by the way, how does he speak to us today? Do we hear him audibly? No, how does he speak to us today? Through his word, doesn't he? So let's apply that principle for a minute. When we read the Bible, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could get our heart in such a way that we already say, before we even open the book, Lord, my answer is already yes. Whatever you show me today, I will do it. I will obey it. I will, I will take heed to it. I love when I see this in the Old Testament. He said, Here am I. In verse 5 it says, And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, God, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And uh, we find here that uh, God begins by giving him some instructions. He said, take, the, take your shoes off, you're on holy ground. He's going to give him far more instructions here in just a few moments. But you also find here in verse number 6, his sense of unworthiness. These men that uh, get up on television and talk about seeing God in visions, and they talk and they brag about how they are God's best buddy, and they walk arm in arm and hand in hand, and they look God in the face and they stand in His presence. I don't ever find that in Scripture. I find when men come into the presence of a holy God, there is a, there's an undone condition. I'm thankful that we are saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the book of Hebrews tells us to come boldly to the throne of grace, and that is in sense of prayer and coming to Him by way of fellowship. But the truth is, if we come into the very presence of God Himself, there is a sense of humility that comes along with that, a sense of undoneness. And the Lord said, verse number 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. <clears throat> and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of the land under the good land and large, and a land flowing with milk and honey, uh, and to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression where, uh, wherewith the Egyptians oppress them. Come now therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people the children of Israel out of Egypt. And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, now get in mind here, Moses had been raised in Pharaoh's household, hadn't he? It would have been very simple for Moses, who had been raised in the palace, to say, I am somebody, I got, you know what, I'm, you got the right man for the, the job, Lord. Here I go. I'm going to go back to the palace. I'm going to stand there. But God had given Moses a sense of humility. He says, Who am I that I should do this? In verse 12, And he said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee. And here we find the enabling taking place. That I have sent thee, where when, when thou hast brought forth the people out of, the Egypt, uh, out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say unto me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent, you unto me, uh, sent me unto you. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you, and this is my name 
forever. And this is my memorial unto all generations. And so we find God giving very clear instructions. He's giving very great enablement. And He gives very great responsibility. He's, he's asking Moses to do something that is greater than Moses. And I will say this, I've heard so many times people over the years that have not done a work for the Lord because they said it's too much for me. I will say this, God often gives us a responsibility that is too great for us. And the reason He does so, I believe, is so that we have that absolute dependence upon Him. And Lord, if you're going to accomplish this, it's going to have to be because of what you have done. I think that's what uh, answers to prayer and praying is all about is us coming to Him saying, Lord, I can't deal with this situation. I need your intervention. I need your help in this. And to understand our in inability and His ability to be able to accomplish these things. That's why we pray. That's why we come to Him. Look with me, if you will, in Isaiah chapter 6. We'll see Isaiah's call uh, to serve. And again, we'll see uh, very, very similar to this. We'll see some things that, again, God gives by way of instruction, by way of enablement, and the way of responsibility. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse number 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I, all, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple, and above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hands, which he had taken with tongs from off the altar. So in verse 5, we find uh, a, a humility, a lack of um, confidence in self. In verse number six, we see in verse number six and seven, we see an enablement take place. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, "Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged." Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, "Whom shall I send, and who will go for us?" Then said I, "Here am I, send me." Uh, the confidence found in verse 8 is, is in stark contrast to the absolute dependence that he has in verse number 5. What took place in the middle? God enabled. God strengthened. God purged him. God purified him for the work. The Bible talks about being vessels of honor, vessels of dishonor. The fact that we are instruments to be used in the Master's hand. And there are so many times, I think, if we're not careful, where God longs to use us to do a work, and we are the ones that hinder it. Either our lack of dependence upon Him. I, I think a lot of people see their frailty and their lack of confidence in self. But you can't stop there. Then you must see also your confidence in Christ. Uh, you can't just excuse away, say, I'm not going to serve the Lord because I can't do it uh, by saying that. You have to come to Him and say, uh, I, need to, I need to have your ability to be able to accomplish this work. I've seen a lot of people that uh, have had the, the call of God or had a desire from the Lord to do a work for Him that have 
neglected it, mainly because they said the task is too great. It's too big for me. By the way, uh, we can look back in our lives, can we not, and find perhaps times that that has been our excuse. Things that we've missed out on that God intended for us to do. I, I truly believe when we get to heaven, we are going to see some of the things that God intended to do with us that we did not say, Lord, I'll do it with your help. You say, Pastor, it's, it's too big of a deal. It's too, too great of a work. I, I'm not good at this. I don't have that talent. God doesn't enable me in this area. Uh, if, he's, if He's led you to do it, He'll enable you along the way. God doesn't tell somebody to do something and then leave them to their own devices to do it. He enables them. He strengthens them to do it. Let's look in Daniel chapter 10. We'll look at this last one here. Daniel chapter number 10. We find God giving instruction to Moses, and there was even an enablement that took place there. We find God giving enablement uh, to uh, Isaiah. And then in Daniel chapter number 10, and let's look in verse number 5. Daniel chapter 10 and verse number 5. Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Euphaz. His body also was like the barrel in his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned in, in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. And here we find it again, don't we? I'll tell you, we're living in a day where men, these charlatans, these false prophets, false teachers and preachers are standing up and saying that we are, uh, are, are the ones that order God around. We are gods. Uh, we are little gods. And God can't do anything unless we unlock it here on earth. Can I tell you this? That is absolutely not found in Scripture anywhere. We have an absolute dependence, and God can do what He chooses to do. At any time He chooses to do it, He is not limited by us. We find here that Daniel says that his comeliness was turned in him into corruption, and he retained no strength. Yet heard I the voice of his words, and when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. And behold, a hand touched me which set me upon my knees and upon my palms of my hand, uh, the palms of my hands. And here we find an enabling, don't we? We have a strengthening. And he said unto me, O Daniel, man, greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. And so we find there are some instructions that are given. And there is a responsibility that he gives to Daniel to take the message he had been given to the nation of Israel. So back to the book of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 1 through 3. If you'll take time to read through that, we don't have time today to deal with uh, the call of Ezekiel because it covers all three of these chapters. Uh, but take some time to read those, and you'll see that God does the same thing with Ezekiel. He's done with men in the past in the Old Testament. We find the second section of the book is the judgment of Judah. This is in chapters 4 through 24, and this is Ezekiel using signs and parables. Unlike Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel was allowed to marry. 
unfortunately, and, and, and you know, I, when we read this, we, we say, boy, that doesn't sound good. God really put them through the ringer. God actually caused Ezekiel's wife to die and used the death of his wife as a teaching moment for the nation of Judah. And uh, so we find that God uses, or Ezekiel uses signs, he uses parables, he uses direct prophecies uh, to speak to Judah of uh, the judgment of God. In all of this, uh, Ezekiel gives hope of the restoration of Israel uh, and in the end and how God was going to restore them. And uh, he puts a large focus on uh, the temple and the worship uh, practices, the sacrifices, and how they had been so corrupted by the nation of Judah. He puts a strong emphasis on the sacredness of this and, um, and speaks very strongly about those things. Uh, their judgment was because there were abominations that had been committed. Uh, there are several, I'm going to give you a list of these things. The judgments that God gave here in chapters 4 through 24 are given for these reasons. First, the abominations that Israel or Judah committed in the temple. The fact that they had, uh, uh, that the, the part of the judgment was the slaying of the wicked, those that were wicked and ungodly. God uh, off, slew off many of those. Um, one of the things of God's judgment on the nation of Judah at this point, and one of the biggest things to Ezekiel was uh, the departure of God's glory from the temple. Uh, remember when the temple, the tabernacle was originally built in the wilderness and later the temple, and then uh, when they built the second temple, uh, we find the, even e each of those instances, one of the exciting things was when it was completed and they dedicated it, that God's Shekinah glory came and rested in the Holy of Holies. And it was always a picture of God's close presence with His people. And so you can understand how fraught the, young, the, the folks from Judah were when they saw the glory of the Lord depart the temple. Uh, this was something that just was very, very troubling to them. Uh, they saw the glory depart, and, and it's interesting because Isaiah is very specific about it that when it did depart, they were able to see it, and it went to the Mount of Olives first, and then it departed to the east. And part of the restoration that Ezekiel talks about in the end of his book is how that the glory of the Lord will return from the east, and uh, giving hope to a generation of people. And again, keep in mind now, he, he went during the second captivity, He's speaking a lot of times to people who were born in captivity. People that didn't know anything other than Babylon. And he's trying to help them understand, look, we're in judgment now because of what our people did earlier, and this is why. And then saying, but understand, there's going to come a day where God's going to restore Israel once again. And so a lot of his prophecies deal with that. Uh, the... The third section of the book is chapters 25 to 32, and this deals with the judgment on the Gentile nations. Um, he lists some specific nations all around them that surrounded uh, Israel and, and uh, Jerusalem specifically, uh, the children of Ammon, uh, the children of Moab, the children of Edom, uh, the nation of Philistia, um, and uh, Tyrus and Sidon. Uh, I'm only about halfway through my notes, and it is time. Uh, so we're going to continue Ezekiel because there's a pretty good amount of material I want to give you um, on Tyrus, the city of Tyrus. 
uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that. And then we'll talk a little bit about the Valley of Dry Bones next week. I want to spend a little bit of time on that as well uh, in Ezekiel. But, uh, boy, there's a lot of history here. There's a lot of background, and it helps us when we understand uh, the context, the setting that this book is written in. It helps the message uh, become more applicable to us. We kind of understand what God is doing and why he's doing it. And uh, so I hope that these things will help you. Uh, I don't have the notes available for you today, but I will have them for you next Sunday uh, after class if you'd like to have those. And um, be glad to get those out to you. But we'll pick up there next week. And Lord willing, we'll finish next week. I've got enough notes. It may take two more weeks on this book. Um, there's an awful lot in Ezekiel. And a lot of things that, uh, that I think are certainly things we can learn from today. Uh, a lot of people say, and I've heard folks say, well, the Old Testament doesn't apply to today. Boy, there is a wealth of things we can learn from the Old Testament. And uh, I understand we're not under the law the way that they were in the Old Testament. We're under grace now. But there is certainly an awful lot that we can learn from uh, the things in the Old Testament. I hope that will be a help to you. All right, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're thankful for your word. And Lord, what a joy it is to our hearts to be able to study it, to know it. And uh, Father, as we... Um, look into this, even just this book of Ezekiel, uh, what, a, what a help it is to us as we understand some things, um, and we look at how you've dealt with 